This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I'm very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. Dear listeners, bear with me. As you can hear, I am recovering from a cold, luckily though a non-COVID cold, and I'm not going to be at my best today. That being stated, I am super excited for this episode We are bringing a bonus Midnight Myth episode in preparation for our 200th episode. This episode is for you, listeners. This is the first ever Midnight Myth question and answer podcast. Ask us anything and ask you did. We have some wonderful questions to share with you today and we'll uh, share our answers as best we can. I'm really excited to dig into them, and I'm really grateful to all of you for asking us these questions and getting our brain juices flowing. It also inspired us for the future of the podcast. A lot of our next episodes will come out of the things that you asked us. Indeed. I, you know, when we announced a Q&A, the original thought was going to be, we are going to tag the Q&A into our 200th episode. But we got so many questions, we realized we couldn't just tag that at the end. So we decided to do a bonus episode as a warm-up to our 200th episode. So here's how this is going to work. We are going to answer as many questions as we can until we either A, run out of questions, or B, the baby wakes up, whichever happens first. So there's no time limit. If the baby wakes up and we have to stop, that's when we'll stop, or when we run out of questions. At the end, we promised a giveaway. So everybody that asked a question, their name is in a hat. We're going to pull a name out of the hat and you're going to win the giveaway. Did we announce the prize on social media? We announced the theme here because it is a little giveaway package that we're creating for you based around Marvel and Norse mythology. So a couple of the properties that we really love, some pop culture and some history and mythology. So what's included is going to be a special edition Funko Pop of Loki, a copy of Neil Gaiman's Norse Mythology, which we really love, 
and a game called Munchkin, but the Marvel edition of Munchkin. And let us tell you, we have played this game many, many times. It is extraordinarily fun, and it is brutal and cutthroat. So it is not for the faint of heart, but we really recommend it, and that's why we're throwing it in a giveaway. So we will be pulling that hat or that name out of the hat today and picking out our giveaway winner, and then we'll contact you via the platform you reached out to us on, and we will arrange for the delivery of your giveaway. It may not surprise any of you that Laurel and I are big tabletop gamers, and one of the games that got us into tabletop gaming was your sister got us Marvel Munchkin for Christmas or a birthday, I don't know which, and we loved playing it so much. And then from there, we played other Munchkins, and now we are just addicted to tabletop games. Pretty much, yeah. Addicted is the right word. Before we jump in, at the end of this episode, we are also going to be revealing what our topic is for our 200th episode spectacular. So stick around so that you can find out what that is going to be. But I would also love to remind or share with you that this week, Wednesday, March 16th, in fact, I will be releasing the first episode of my new podcast, Sleep and Sorcery. So if you are someone who, like me, has trouble sleeping sometimes, or just needs a little bit of help to relax and unwind from a stressful day, come join me over at Sleep and Sorcery. I'll be on every podcast platform that this podcast is available on, and it is a folklore and fantasy-inspired sleep series. So we'll take you to these fantasy realms inspired by stories that you love, inspired by mythologies and legends and histories, and we'll use those as these beautifully crafted environments to lull you to sleep. So I hope you'll join me. Look out for Sleep and Sorcery launching on Wednesday the 16th. Wonderful. Without further ado, shall we just uh, roll up our sleeves and go with the first question? Let's do it. So we are going to start with a question from the Friendly Sparring Podcast at Friendly Spar Pod. And I'm going to kick this to you, Derek. I think you might be the expert on this one. What film or films has the best representation of Egyptian mythology? None. None that I know of. Um, That is a really, really good question. Oftentimes, Egyptian mythology is westernized in Hollywood. You see a lot of things with mummies. You see um, a lot of Orientalism. So it gets othered a lot. It, It looks foreign and different. It's utilized to make people look like an other, a non-white Westerner, and typically is relegated as a bad guy or a villain. The Mummy is a great example. I can also think of, this is a deep cut, if you're a fan of Batman the Animated Series, there's a two-part episode called The Demon's Quest, in which Ra's al Ghul um, is shown wearing the head of Anubis. Even though this character is not Egyptian, They make him dress like an Egyptian deity just to signify his villainy and his otherness to Batman. So there's not a lot of good representations I'm aware of. There's a lot of misunderstanding and misapprehension about Egyptian mythology and Egyptian history. It it is one of the most passions, one of my biggest passions is Egyptian history more so than Egyptian mythology. So I know much more about the history than the myths, but they are intertwined as they were very religious and very devoted to their religion and their pantheon of gods. That being stated, I can't think of a single good representation off of the top of my head. 
I will throw in, and I'm not as uh, steeped in Egyptian mythology and history as you have been, but I did really enjoy the representation of Egyptian mythology and afterlife practices in American Gods. It's not a film per se, but a television show based on the Neil Gaiman novel American Gods, and I thought there was a really interesting representation of it through the characters who are living in our modern world but are still uh, steeped in those practices and brought bring the mythology through a modern-day funeral home. So I think that was an interesting way to view it. I love how that show handled a lot of different mythologies and, and brought them into uh, the contemplation of a modern American environment. Uh, the last time we talked really about Egyptian mythology on the podcast was with Beetlejuice, of all things. And it's not explicitly saying this is Egyptian mythology, but it's clearly inspired by it. So, uh, yeah, I think that was a great answer. I would check out American Gods. Yeah, American Gods is fantastic. Uh, and I'd say the first season I really liked. The second season, yeah. not so much. But anyway, great question. I can't think of any good, accurate examples. If you know of one, listeners, yeah, please let us know. Let me know, and I want to see it. Awesome. Moving on to the next question. This came from our friends at Geek Salad. So the Twitter handle is at Geek Salad Radio. We just a couple weeks ago did a fabulous movie review of Eternals with Mike and Andy over at Geek Salad, and we're big fans of them. So check them out when you have the time. The question is, and I believe this is coming from Andy from their Twitter, has there been a film that has absolutely stymied you in terms of finding a link historically or mythologically? I think this is a really great question because, yeah, I mean, there's probably a film out there that we can't find history or mythology for, but we kind of walked through this as an exercise, and it's really our mission and our belief, our kind of passion is that history, mythology, and philosophy are everywhere in our storytelling, and that we are looking for universal themes that suffuse everything we do. So like, while we're not gonna necessarily do a podcast on American Pie, and it doesn't seem like American Pie is full of history, mythology, and philosophy, if you really look at it, like there's tons of Freudian stuff going on there, there's the rites of passage and like sexuality and coming of age, like we could find it pretty much anywhere, right? Yeah, I agree. I don't think we've ever been stumped and I don't think there is a movie out there where if looking for a universal mythological or historical theme, you can't find it. A lot of what we do was inspired by Joseph Campbell and A Hero with a Thousand Faces. And in the preface to A Hero with a Thousand Faces, if you're not aware, Joseph Campbell was a comparative mythologist who took Freudian and Jungian principles of psychology and applied them to comparative myth and legends across a wide array of cultures. Everything from Buddhism to Christianity to Sub-Saharan African mythology, and also applied those to rites of passage. And in it, he is looking for the connective themes and admits that his work is somewhat subjective. He says, I am looking for the universal themes, but a equal work could be done highlighting the differences. All of this is to say that when you're looking for the connective tissue, you're going to find it because humans are one species and as vast and diverse as we are, we have way more in common than we do that separates us, even across cultures, languages, barriers. Because of that, because we have a shared ancestry, 
because we have a shared connective tissue in storytelling, we can always find the mythological or historical hook. So even in something that doesn't at face value seem to be a midnight myth worthy project, and maybe it's not because it's not of interest to Laurel and I, that mythological hook, that historical hook is most likely in there. Even if for no other reason than we can debate the history behind the, the particular project, the particular film or movie, when it was made, how it was made, the technology that made it is always a historical artifact. Every movie is in part a piece of history and a piece of mythology, no matter what. And because of that, we're never going to run out of things to talk about. Absolutely. I'll say of the projects that we have done, of the episodes that we have done, the ones that come to mind that were uh, that were challenging in terms of finding the link or finding exactly what the thread would be that would pull us through the episode are like Clue. I remember being a little worried once we announced we were going to do that, that we weren't going to have enough. And then once I found the thread, which for me was the history of the whodunit, I believe you talked about communism and Red Scare. And that became a really interesting uh, way to craft that episode around history and see how stories emerge out of the times that they are produced in and how the development of literature over time develops alongside history. So that was really interesting. The other one was Rocky Horror, of all things. I was like, oh no, did we get ourselves in too deep? Is there actually nothing going on in Rocky Horror? And then once I was like, oh no, this is an English pantomime, I I went crazy. I was just so excited. And that is the fun thing about doing the Midnight Myth is when you find the hook or you find the thread, it is so satisfying to follow that through and have your point of view confirmed or at least supported by the text. It's really cool. You talked about hedonism on that one too, which was great. So we got to talk about some history, some dramatic technique and some philosophy. Yeah. So we haven't been stymied yet. Not yet, yeah. Two last points on that question, and it's a great question. One, communism was just a red herring. And two, in Western philosophy, there's a project called the dialectic, and it started with the ancient Greeks. And the idea is that each philosopher will pick up where the last philosopher left off. So all of Western philosophy can be read in part as one long conversation starting with the pre-Socratics and ending to today. In many ways, I feel like film operates like a dialectic as well. Every movie is in conversation with the previous movie and is forming the movies yet to come. As an innovation, whether it's technological, whether it's narrative happens, everything will then change. For example, you don't really have the modern blockbuster unless you have Steven Spielberg, and you don't really have Steven Spielberg unless you have Star Wars, and you don't really have Star Wars if you don't have George Lucas reading A Hero with a Thousand Faces in college. Or watching samurai movies or reading Buck Rogers. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love the point about the dialectic. I kind of think the Midnight Myth is a dialectic too. Obviously, we're the same people, and there's some continuity between us and our other episodes, but we very much are in conversation with these films and often in conversation with our past perceptions of those films. Anyway, I love that a lot. Uh, moving on to the next question, I have a couple of questions from M at Verbal Diorama, another podcast that we absolutely love and a great friend to us on the internet. 
Uh, M asked a similar question to the one we just answered, but I'd like to ask it anyway. Is there anything you've really wanted to cover in the past, but couldn't find a historical, mythological, or philosophical link? Again, I think a similar answer. There are lots of things that we have in the future that we want to cover, and we think we could find that link, but maybe haven't yet. A couple of things that I'm really interested in covering in the future, uh, but have to really figure out our way into it, are things like The Truman Show, I would really love to do. Absolutely, there is a link with like Plato's Cave, but I don't want to retread Plato's Cave for the 30th time. So, Oh, I like retreading Plato. I think we absolutely should, but we just really dove into it on The Matrix, and we've talked about it a few times. So I'd want to revisit that movie and be like, what else is there, or how can I talk about this in a new way? Um, also... Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Stranger Than Fiction. These are things that the link is absolutely there. We just have to go back and revisit it and find the cogent way for us to talk about it that's new. Yeah, more often it is we find the link, but we have already discussed that particular thing, usually at nauseum. So we're like, maybe we shouldn't do this because our analysis piece would be too similar to a previous episode. Yeah, so we're always looking for new and fresh perspectives on ways to talk about this and not be too repetitive for you. Another question from M. This is a great one. How do you plan episodes around parenting? It changes every single day, M. It is crazy. So having a baby is chaos, uh, just in a word. It is chaos, especially in the early newborn days they sleep all the time, but also they never sleep and they always need to be held and they're always crying, but then they're also always hungry and always eating. It's just bananas. And I cannot believe that we were able to get back into the studio so quickly after having a baby. But do you want to tell the story of how we got back into the studio? Yeah. So a lot of you may or may not know our birth circumstances were not ideal, both of us came down with COVID a week before Laurel's due date. Laurel was luckily largely asymptomatic. I was knocked down and could barely walk. Yeah, you were really sick. So I was hanging on. Um, luckily, not severe enough to be hospitalized, so fortunate there. But I wasn't able to be there when Arthur was born because I was COVID positive and symptomatic and Arthur's safety, Laurel's safety, as well as the safety of the hospital staff, the great people that helped deliver the baby for Laurel, they needed to be protected from me. I was definitely infectious. So Arthur was born, and it was rough. We, When Arthur came home, I had to, I held him once, and then I had to isolate from him. So Laurel had to do a ton, and I mean a ton of the early days pretty much like a single parent. And I don't have any problem coming clean with this on the podcast and sharing this with you and kind of being vulnerable here, but I did suffer from uh, postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, which can make you feel so not yourself. Uh, and it, it's, it's very natural to not feel like yourself after having a baby, even if you don't suffer from that mood disorder, but that really compounded things. And so finding ways to feel like myself again were crucial in those early days and still are towards keeping me functional and keeping me healthy. Well, and we had been doing the Harry Potter rewatch, reread the books, and we had gotten everything up to 
the Deathly Hallows, the last half of the Deathly Hallows. So we had had an episode locked and loaded. Arthur is born. And one day, I think I just looked at Laurel and I'm like, let's do the Deathly Hallows. And she looked back at me and she's like, there's no way we can do it. And typical me, like shining optimism, I'm sure there's a way we could do it. You know, <laughs> let's just figure it out. And we wrapped up Arthur because he was a newborn in this like sleep sack that snuggles him close to Laurel. And he just slept like an angel. And we did the episode and we realized podcasting and parenting, it's not an either or choice. We could figure out a way to do both. And I think it was a healing exercise for both of us to feel like we could still engage in our pre-parenting hobby and our passion, which is the Midnight Myth Project, that we could still be some of our pre-parent selves and we could fit it into parenting. Do Have we perfected this? Certainly not. As you know, our schedule is very irregular. But at the same time, it is so important to us to do this work. It means so much to us. And when you become a parent, where there's a will, there is a way. A parenting is about just shut up and do. It really is. And you It want, doesn't matter if you think you can do it or not. You just have to do it. Where there's a will, there's a way. If your baby is sick and has 11 days of diarrhea, where there's a will, there's a way. And if you want to fit a podcast in between when he's napping, where there's a will, there's a way. Yep. And right now he takes two naps a day still, and we are hoping that we can hold on to those naps for as long as they will last, because that's when we'll be able to make episodes for you. Anyway, moving on, I've got one more question from M. This one's quick. And just when will you be covering The Mummy from 1999? We all want it, and by all, I mean me. Soon. Yeah, this year. We'll do it this year. 100%. I, I, I still haven't seen The Mummy, and I'm very sorry, especially, I'm sorry, M. It is. I will fix that. It is like a near-perfect movie. It is so much fun. Okay, awesome. And I have so much to say about it. Great. We're going to do it this year. Okay, moving on, we have a question from Steve at Escadalunas. When a new idea hits you for an episode of the pod, what motivates you to want to research and share your thoughts and feelings about that idea? What makes it worthy of being a part of the Midnight Myth structure? Whoa. Yeah, great question. I have a very easy answer. Go for it. Did I enjoy the piece of artwork we want to talk about? And do I have something I want to say? If the answer to those two questions is yes, I'm ready to go. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I'm at too. A really great moment for me when I'm watching something or reading something is when my brain starts making connections and I start getting the little galaxy brain. If I start asking questions or if I start being like, I want to write that down or I want to remember that quote or this reminds me of this, that's a moment when I'm like, this is worthy of at least following it down the garden path and investigating whether it's worthy of the midnight myth. Uh, there are some times when we're watching something and we're like, oh yeah, duh, this is a midnight myth episode. Like Eternals, like we're watching that and we're like, oh yeah, they're all named after you know Greek and Roman gods. Yeah, done, we're doing it. Um, but then there are other moments when it's a little more drawn out and you just look for those little hooks that get you thinking, ah, this reminds me of this. You know, something I don't know if we're going to cover in the future because we had sort of different opinions on it is Station Eleven that was just on HBO. I think it's worthy of covering, but it's 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 worth investigating whether or not it's 
it's really uh, aligned with both of us. But that was just a place where I was like, ah, this has Shakespeare, this has pandemic, this has uh, this emotional arc. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's got a lot, I think, to follow, but do those threads line up? Yeah, and oftentimes we rely on each other. There might be a thing I'm really passionate about and I want to talk about, and Laurel may not be so into it. And sometimes there's a little jockeying back and forth. And oftentimes when Laurel pushes me out of my comfort zone, it's when I come up with my best insights. So I think we rely on each other to challenge each other to say, there are some things that are like, no does like Marvel's the Eternals. We're like, yeah, that's an easy midnight myth one, our latest episode. But there are other times where I want to do something or Laurel wants to do something where I might be, or she might be on the fence and those tend to be some of our most productive and interesting episodes. Yeah. I mean, you wore me down on 300, and I think that ended up being a really strong episode for us, even though I don't care for the movie. We learned a lot. Podcasters, what is your profession? Oh, <laughs> sorry. Awesome. Okay, next question is from Mike at Gundam Giver. This is Mike from Geek Salad. He asks, are there any older pre-1970 films you've been thinking about covering but just haven't gotten to yet? Yes. Yes. Interesting. Absolutely. More on that later. More on that later. I went to film school, and so classic cinema is a huge part of the critical study curriculum, and I was a big, you know, film elitist nerd for a really long time, so I do love classic movies. We haven't done a ton on the podcast. We've done Casablanca. We did 2001 A Space Odyssey is pre-1970, and I'm sure we've done some other, like, we did Wizard of Oz, um, but yeah, we haven't dug a lot into classic cinema. And classic we Disney, we've done. Yeah, lots of classic Disney, but we certainly want to do some more. So yes. More the, on that later. Addendum to that question is, I would love to hear you cover Mary Poppins and or 20,000 Leagues, but that's because I'm a huge Dis nerd. I love that idea. It'd be really fun to cover Mary Poppins and try and figure out what class and race she is in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, 20,000 Leagues would be really fun too. We can talk about Jules Verne and... On the list. Yeah. A absolutely. We will do those episodes for you, Mike. Absolutely. Okay. From Wheel of Ka. I don't know what that is. From at Wheel of Ka. That's a weird name. What is your favorite episode of The Midnight Myth and why? I'm going to be perfectly honest. We've been doing this for five years. I don't remember every episode. Oftentimes, I go to Laurel, hey, we should do an episode on blank. And she goes, yeah, we should. We did that two and a half years ago. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. So I might not be the best judge. I will say we'd recently gone back and re-listened to our reread and discussion on Lord of the Rings. And I think I'm probably most proud of that work that we did there. And I really love those episodes. I also just adore a deep in my heart, the movie Gladiator, it's one of my, if not my all-time favorite movie. So I'm really glad that we got to do Gladiator. But what about you, Laurel? I kind of took this. I have a lot of episodes that are special to me or that I'm really proud of. One of those is our series on The Lord of the Rings. I'm proud of our Harry Potter series too. But the very first episode that popped into my mind when this question was asked, and it might surprise people, I think it surprised Derek when I told him about this, was our episode on Phantom of the Opera back in 2020. I... Felt so good about that episode. It was so joyous to be able to talk about musical theater, even though it's a phantom. 
Um, but then to also talk about even though it's it's phantom. I mean, I say it in the episode. Like I'm I'm done pretending I don't like things that I like. I like Phantom, but I get made fun of for liking Phantom by my theater friends. Anyway, I am really proud of that episode. We did some really good work into history, mythology, and philosophy. We did some digging into the text. We had a great time watching the production. And uh, I got to talk about romanticism and the Gothic. And that is one of my favorite subjects. So that is maybe my favorite episode of The Midnight Myth. I love it. It's called Masquerade, and it came out in like spring of 2020. So check it out. Moving on. Okay, from Tony at Angel Method, we have, when will podcasts start being based off baby movies that you've had to watch on repeat? Um, it's already happened. We did one on Encanto. We did Encanto. Um, <laughs> Which is, I think, Arthur's favorite movie. <laughs> I'm really excited for Arthur to become like a real co-host of the podcast. For a few months, he was actually in the room with us because I would wear him and he would nap, and now he naps in his own room. But, uh, you know, maybe there's a maybe there's a day when like five year old Arthur comes on and we talk about Baby Shark and Sesame Street. You know, I I've got to say, don't underestimate kids media. Oh, don't, yeah. Don't underestimate because it's made for children. It can't be good. If anything, I think the Midnight Myth, one of the things we love talking about, some of the most mythologically infused stories are the ones designed and geared towards children and families. And there's nothing that this family likes to do more than fun family time together. So there's going to be a lot of kids' movies, and they're definitely going to show up on the podcast. And they also, like our Disney stuff, does really, really well. Our most popular, most downloaded episode by a country mile, there is no one who can touch it, is Frozen. And it has been that way since that episode came out in 2019, and it is to this day. And it's still growing. Yeah, it's people are still listening still to our listening Frozen to episode. our Frozen episode. That's a good episode too. That's up there in some of my favorites. Okay, another question from Tony. I love this question. When are you going to do a dive into something like Twin Peaks? Twin Peaks is my second favorite show of all time, uh, next to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I love this question. Derek and I are sadly a little bit split on Twin Peaks. We did early on an episode digging into the work of David Lynch, mostly through Mulholland Drive. But we did talk a little bit about some of the themes that he carries over and some of the visual cues that he carries over from Twin Peaks, how he's still working with some of the same uh, the same stuff. And it's believed that Mulholland Drive was conceived early on as a, uh, a pilot for a spinoff show about Audrey from Twin Peaks. So we do talk about it a little bit there. I would love to do like a full dive into the series Twin Peaks, but that would mean Derek would have to watch it again. Listen, I do it for Tony and I would do it for Tony. I Not for me. For, you got to do it for the fans, love. <laughs> yeah, not for you. I did it once for you already. <laughs> I'm right. kidding. Now, listen, I think David Lynch is a phenomenal artist. I highly, highly highly respect what he is able to do in film and television. I think it's interesting. It's fun. It's surrealistic. Actually, let me rephrase that. It's interesting. It's surrealistic, like, but it's fun. not fun. And I'm at a point in my life where the ambiguity, the darkness, the prescient evil, and the fact that that evil always seems to get the upper hand in the most 
bizarre and unique ways. It doesn't resonate with me. I think there's a time in my life that if I had seen Twin Peaks, it would have been my favorite show. But that time has sadly passed. I would very much be open to doing a Twin Peaks thing because you love it and Tony asked asked for it. But I'm going to do it kicking and screaming and fighting. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the entire way. Okay. Good to know. We'll keep working on them. From Flavio Hickle Jr., we've got two questions. I'm going to start with a, a short one. What is the perfect story? Flavio is one of my best friends. Does and it he, exist? He definitely asked that question to troll us. That's just his style. Uh, fun fact, Flavio and I, pre-pandemic, were in conversation of launching our own podcast. Then the pandemic happened, and that kind of mucked those plans up. So maybe one day we'll get back to that. But we had a really good idea for a side podcast. It just doesn't fit in either of our lives right now. Um, since now I have two podcasts, a baby and a business. But Flavio, to answer that question, what is the perfect movie? It's Star Wars. Star Move Wars, on. yeah. Um, okay. He also asks, why is medieval-inspired fantasy experiencing such a resurgence? Clearly, it's about escapism. But why are we drawn to this type of escapism? And particularly, Game of Thrones illustrates that it was a brutal time that we wouldn't actually want to escape into. I love this question because I love the Middle Ages. That could be a whole episode. Why don't you run with this? Yeah, so I I think this is great. I think, yes, there is absolutely an element of escapism in medieval-inspired fantasy. But I don't think that's the only thing that draws us to medieval-inspired fantasy. Game of Thrones clearly was a juggernaut and it was a big risk for HBO and it paid off in ways they could not have possibly anticipated. So a lot of what we're seeing now is this really interesting Mobius strip of inspiration because Game of Thrones clearly takes so much from Tolkien, the works of Tolkien, who is the father of contemporary medieval inspired fantasy. And now Amazon is doing its extremely expensive Lord of the Rings series. We have uh, Wheel of Time and we have so many other uh, properties that are trying to capitalize on the resurgence of medieval fantasy. So yes, I do think there's escapism there. I think there is a romance around knights and ladies and uh, magic that is infusing these castles and, and whatnot. But I, I don't think that's the only thing that draws us to it. I have a really uh, marked interest in the period, and I think a lot of the scholars today have a renewed interest in the medieval period because it has for so long been looked at as the quote-unquote dark age and as this time that was marked by total collapse and uh, inequity and, um, and lack of education and illiteracy and and just this this dark time this dark middle period between the shining roman empire this great example of civilization and then the renaissance and the modern period that would come later and that in the middle there's just this gross ugly middle ages but i think with new examination a lot of people are rediscovering how many of the seeds of the modern world were actually planted during the medieval period how scholasticism and literacy and great literature was born in that period, how the romance was born in that period, and how much of today's literature is truly inspired by it. Our languages. Our languages. 
uh, modern nation states are built during this period. And there's also a renewed interest in the scholastic field of medievalism in understanding what life was like for not the nobles in the medieval period. So what we have, you know, that, that exists usually is portraying what it was like to be wealthy, an aristocrat, a soldier, someone who was in the upper echelon of society. That's what people recorded during those times. But there's more investigation into what a peasant's life was like or what a rising merchant class was doing in this really interesting and really complicated time. So I think that is also tied in with the resurgence of medieval fantasy is like, let's explore how much of the modern world was born during this time for better or for worse. So I really love it. I also, I overheard you were listening to a great courses uh, a couple years ago, and I think you re-listened to it recently by Philip Dayleader. Is that right? Yeah. A top medievalist. Yeah. Um, really wonderful teacher. And I really enjoyed the stuff that I overheard from it. But his conclusion was very much that we arbitrarily draw the end date of the Middle Ages at around like the 14th and 15th centuries. And actually, if you think about it, we were medieval up until like, what does he say, like the 18th and 19th centuries. So he makes a compelling argument that the structures and institutions of medieval Europe don't really transform into modernity, into the systems that we have today until Napoleon's conquest of most of Central Europe where he dismantles what's called the old regime, where he depowers and eliminates the noble classes and allows for new political structures to emerge as he put modernity at the point of musket and cannon and says it's not really until that moment where we can say definitively the things that are clearly demarcated as medieval stop and the modern begins, which is a controversial uh, statement to say at least historically, because when historians agree on drawing a line on one era ends, they tend to be pretty sticky to that idea. But it's a, it's a compelling argument. A noble class, a limited rights peasantry, um, you have the belief in God as supreme, there is no challenges to the idea of that there is a God. There can be challenges on how to worship the God, what that God means, and it is a Christian God in medieval Europe. And it isn't until Napoleon rolled through Europe and you know kicked all the nobles out of power that we start to see the formation of the true modern Europe begin. Yeah. Uh, I'll also just add, you know, I said medieval fantasy is in many ways experiencing its resurgence because of Game of Thrones, because Game of Thrones took its risks. That is a direct correlation. But I also think, you know, Game of Thrones exists and Stranger Things exists and these uh, new fantasy properties that draw from a particular place in time exist because the uh, Gen X and millennials are stepping into roles of creative authority because the Dungeons and Dragons generation has come of age and we're the ones telling stories in Hollywood now. Yeah, a, a thing I'd like to point out too from just a pure industry, you mentioned Game of Thrones, but I want to step back to the turn of the 20th to the 21st yeah, century. Yeah, Lord of the Rings, yeah. Lord of, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings made fantasy cool and made it profitable. You could do something with elves and dwarves fighting monsters and it could make a ton of money. Because of that, Game of Thrones was able to happen. If we think of it truly as escapism, 
I want to challenge that notion, Flavio, and I want to say, if we take a mythological lens to these narratives, first, well, let me just finish my first point. It makes money. That's one, that's the main reason right now. Because of the success of Lord of the Rings, then the success of Game of Thrones, apparently the most streamed show on Amazon was Wheel of Time. Because this is profitable for businesses, they're going to keep doing it. Two, if we take a mythological lens to these properties, what is a myth? A myth is an attempt by peoples to codify a truth into a narrative so that that truth can spread. A myth is a story we tell to ourselves about ourselves so we could learn something about ourselves. If that is the case, it is not escapism at all. It is about the quest and search for meaning. What is Game of Thrones? It's dirty. It's brutal. It's violent. It's dark. It mimics and mirrors the world that we live in. The political structures of Westeros cave in and break down and cynicism reigns supreme and ultimate authority is at the point of the sword. What are we living in now but a dark and cynical age where we are seeing challenges to the institutions that once propped up our society and once uh, delivered us the version of ourselves that we are especially in America, we are the leaders of the free world. The world will be free. We have seen this come time and time again under threat and challenge in our lives. In our generation, we have seen 9-11, the Great Recession. We have seen the rise of right-wing authoritarianism. We have seen the erosion of our institutions. And now we see a new Cold War centered around a uh, Russian dictator invading a sovereign nation at the tail end of a global pandemic that has caused another great recession. It is no wonder. It is not the escape that draws us to Game of Thrones. I challenge that. It's because it mimics our own existence and it is telling us a version, a truth about ourselves that this is the world that we are in. It's why season seven and eight of Game of Thrones are so maligned because it diverts from the realism of our own world and then converts it into a Tolkien-esque, the heroes always win and they have plot armor because you they're good at fighting. Yeah. You know, so it, that's why people feel, felt betrayed. Why do, are those the two least well-received seasons? Because they are the most escapist. It is the ones that are the least escapist that are the most loved. So I don't think it is escapism that drives it to us. I think it is a mirror. It is the truth that this world of Westeros is much like our own. It's cold, it's brutal, and it's dark. Excellent. Shall we move on to another question? Absolutely. We got a couple of questions uh, on Instagram from Dave J. Banff. This is the co-host of Not For The Dinner Table, another podcast that we absolutely love that always makes me laugh out loud. And uh, we got a handful of questions. So I'm going to start with one directed at you, Derek. As the resident Stephen King expert, what would you recommend as the best reading order of his works for a new reader? I'm going to just go ahead and say, not a Stephen King expert. I am a huge, huge Dark Tower fan. I'd consider myself a Dark Towerist. 
more than a Stephen King expert. I have done the Dark Tower several times. If I'm bored and I want to listen to something, I put on the Dark Tower audiobooks. I'm constantly in the Dark Tower world and universe. I started Stephen King at the Dark Tower, and then based upon works that connected to the Dark Tower, I've been picking up his other novels along the way. So not really the best way to like, immerse yourself in Stephen King. Um, Steve, who ho- co-hosts The Wheel of Ka, his wife is reading Stephen King chronologically by release date. So that is her choice and having a really good time at it. If you're looking to jump into Stephen King, and I have not read all of his books, so just got to clarify that, I would recommend probably starting with Salem's Lot. It is a really good introduction into Stephen King, into his style. It gets you a sense Stephen King is the most popular and celebrated author, author, pardon me, of our time, but he's not for everybody. There is a certain air of grotesque and violent and perversion that Stephen King likes to play in, and not everyone's going to be comfortable with that. And Salem's Lot kind of dips its toe into that. And if you can stomach Salem's Lot and enjoy it, you're probably going to like his other work too. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. You have definitely enjoyed your approach to this as a Taoist, as you've talked about it. I think it's been, at least me observing, it's been tremendously rewarding for you to have started with the Dark Tower and then feed into that experience with the books and the story universes that span out from the Dark Tower because the Dark Tower stands at the nexus of all of Stephen King's story universes, right? All things, even the beams, serve the Tower. Absolutely. And then Stephen King will usually address his fans as constant readers, and that's what they they call themselves. So there are a lot of people out there who read all of his works in very different orders, and uh, everyone will give you a, a kind of different idea of how to read it. I can speak as someone who has just started reading more of his books, mostly because I want to get on Derek's level and I enjoy talking to you about literature. So I wanted to be able to read some of the same things as you, but I've been kind of picking up what's available at the library without a wait list. I've read a little bit of the dark tower and it's not for me. I'm trying. Um, but that is not my favorite thing that I've read of his. I started with the shining, which I think is also a really good intro book of his it's early on. It gives you, you know, a groundwork in a lot of his uh, themes and styles and the things that will recur. I also agree Salem's Lot is a great entry. I'll say my favorite work that I've read of him so far is 11.22.63. I thought that was just an exquisite book and one of my favorite things I have ever read. I also just finished The Stand and I loved that as well. And I really loved It. It may be the best book I've ever read. Yeah. But I don't think you should start with it. Don't start with it. I think you should tackle one that's shorter, see if you enjoy it, and then go on to the classics. Yeah, you really can't go wrong with Salem's Lot. The one reason I don't recommend The Shining is if you've seen the movie, that's going to color how you read the book. That's true. I like them both on their own merits, but a lot of people feel very conflicted. And if you just want to get a taste of Stephen King blind, no idea what it's about, Salem's Lot would be where I'd start. Great. Uh, The next question is for me. Laurel, do you have a favorite author or series? And can we expect a Wheel of Cost spinoff podcast of your favorite author or series? 
Thank you for asking. I love to read, so I have a lot of favorite books and authors and series. You probably cannot expect a spinoff podcast at this time uh, focused around that because I'm working on sleep and sorcery. But uh, there was a time in my life when I thought I would do a spinoff Harry Potter podcast. It was going to be called The Forbidden Forest. I am no longer in that place because I just don't want to spend a lot of time or energy amplifying the voice of J.K. Rowling. I will love Harry Potter for the rest of my life, but I just have to be careful about uh, how I engage with that material. Um, Other series that I would consider someday if I had the time doing a spinoff podcast of, uh, if you've ever read The Chronicles of Pradane by Lloyd Alexander, that's one that I toyed with wanting to do on The Midnight Myth for a while. That's the series that includes The Black Cauldron, and it is a... Uh, it's a young adult fantasy series that is inspired by Welsh and Celtic mythology. So one that I really loved growing up and I think deserves, you know, some scrutiny and some literary inquiry uh, in a midnight myth style way. So that's one that I would consider. Um, My favorite book is Watership Town. Um, Okay. Question for both of us. Who is your favorite God, goddess, or hero from any ancient mythology? How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I could go on and on. So my ultimate favorite god of all gods of all myths that are known to me is Odin. Um, For a whole host of reasons, I enjoy the king energy. I enjoy um, identifying with the king energy in mythological stories. And Odin as a king of the gods, uh, he doesn't rape anybody like Zeus does. And I like the, in particular, the myth where Odin goes to Mimir's well and he removes his eye and places it in the well so he could drink the primordial waters and gain wisdom that no other god has. I also enjoy the myth where Odin hangs himself on Yggdrasil for nine days. And while he is hanging, he is constantly being stabbed by a spear and that he turns the world tree into a gallows and he gets reborn from this experience and learns runes and from runes, he learns magic. I like that Odin sacrifices himself and his body for knowledge. I like that despite the fact that he will ultimately fail in leading Asgard against the, the frost giants that he represents a for myth for ancient myth, a more positive version of kingship compared to some of the other Kings of gods, Zeus, Jupiter and Marduk. I'm looking at you. And um, yeah, I could go on and on about how much I enjoy Odin. I'm also a very big fan of Athena. I'm a big fan of Athena, one, because I adore ancient Greek philosophy that comes from where? Athens, which is the patron city of Athena. I love that Athena represents martial prowess as well as wisdom. I love that how the story of how Athens got named after her Poseidon and Athena were in competition for this city and Poseidon gave them a great navy so that they could have all of this power. Athena gave them the um, olive. Yeah. And connecting both the military to the agriculture and from olives, they were able to feed themselves. From olives, they were able to make truces by handing the olive branch. From olives, they were able to make oils They were able to grow as a city and valuing, even though she's associated with war, valuing the agriculture 
over the navy and the Athenians then dedicate their city to her. And I love that Athena is also associated with the home. So I would say my two favorite gods of all time, Odin and Athena. Yo, side note, Athena is a feminist icon, right? She's associated with war, which is this traditionally quote unquote masculine domain. And she's this warrior goddess, but then she also has, as you're saying, this element of domesticity and this entrepreneurial sense that helps her build the economy of Athens. She is, she has it all. She's got her foot in every corner and she has broken the glass ceiling and I'm obsessed. Uh, I love it. And uh, my response to this, I will say uh, also you talked about Odin. Odin is one of our house gods and our other house god who I brought to the table is Caridwin from Welsh mythology. Uh, And she is usually seen in the stories as a witch but then she is in mostly like paganism and neo-paganism revered as a goddess or as one aspect of the triple goddess, however you like to put it. I love her. She's associated with rebirth and uh, the cauldron of inspiration and has this really fierce energy. But I'll say, you also asked about heroes, and I'll talk about my favorite myth, the sort of foundational myth that was my intro to loving mythology, which is the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. So I'll say Orpheus. I knew about Greek myths before. I had read them before. I had a copy of Dolaire's book of Greek myths, which is outstanding. It's a beautifully illustrated Greek mythology book for kids. And the illustrations from the Orpheus story were so compelling to me. And the story is so tragic and so Uh, beautiful and transcendent and full of catharsis. And so it it really swept me up into the world of mythology and got me interested from the get-go. So I also have a tattoo of Orpheus on my back. So that's what I will say is is Orpheus. Yeah, for heroes, I definitely love me some Perseus slaying the Gorgon. Love it. Uh, We have one last question from Dave, and this is for both of us. What is one property that you haven't covered on the show that you would love to cover? I've mentioned a few movies earlier in this podcast that I would love to cover in the near future, but I would also love to spend some time with the Mike Flanagan Netflix horror series, like The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, and particularly Midnight Mass. I know we talked about it briefly in our 2021 in review. I would really love to do a deep dive into Midnight Mass, but I also really loved Bly Manor. So I think that would be up there. Station Eleven. Um, yeah, that's what comes to mind for me. I would love for us to jump into South Park at some point. Yo, it has been on our list since we started conceiving the podcast. We were like, we should do the South Park movie or, you know, we should cover South Park in some way. It's a big, it's a big topic to address, but I think we should. I would love, love, love for us to do just sprinkle in some South Park. Um, Other than that, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head that we want to do that's not on our list to get to. Yeah. So with that said, what do you want to do first? Draw the giveaway or or announce episode 200? Let's do the giveaway. Thank you, everyone, for all of your questions. Thank you so much. They were amazing. I hope you enjoyed listening to the questions as much as we had reading them and talking about them. I can't say how much it means to me and to us, if I can speak for you, Derek, that we have any listeners at all, but that we have this dedicated group of people who are willing to meaningfully engage with us. I wouldn't trade 
you know, the, the small and loyal audience who ask us questions or, you know, give their opinions or offer suggestions. I wouldn't trade that for a million listeners who just passively download and don't listen. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Please continue to talk to us, even if we are not able to make podcasts every week like we used to. Well said. So who is the winner? It's Steve. I swear, Steve just won. Congrats to Steve. Congratulations, Steve. Your trophy's in the mail. Yeah, well, at least we won't need to know where the address is. Yep. Okay, <laughs> Steve, the co-host of The Wheel of Cot. I swear, folks, this was not an inside job. I opened that up and I was like, should we draw again? <laughs> you gave me a look. Almost like uh, you were, uh, oh gosh, what was the... Who are the announcers when they read the wrong best Oscar winner? Oh, yeah. Faye Dunaway and And, uh, uh, Warren Beatty. Yeah, when they read La La Land, but it was La La Land. Yeah, Um, but but that is beautiful because even before we were close friends and podcast co-producers and co-hosts, Steve became a loyal listener. I'll also point out, if you have not yet listened to Mythic Thunderloot, please get the hence to your favorite podcast player. Steve plays Roscoe Chubb on an actual play D&D podcast musical. And it's wonderful. It is so much fun. The characters are great. The music is outstanding. I highly recommend if you're looking for something new to listen to, check out Mythic Thunderloot. Yeah, not only is Steve winning this contest, he's a brilliant podcaster. He's also a phenomenal musician. Has a beautiful baby. Dude's got it good. Yeah. I'm a little jealous of Steve right now. Has the best wife ever who's not me. This is true. And Steve's singing voice is like honey. Yes, it is. Anyway, congrats, Steve, on winning the giveaway. And shall we announce our 200th episode? Let's do it. So uh, drum roll, please. For episode 200, we will be doing... Bonacera. Bonacera. What have I ever done to have you treat me so disrespectfully? The Godfather. And so movie done before the 70s, right? Or was, uh, no, it, it is in the, in the 70s. It is in the 70s. Yes, but a, a jewel of classic American cinema considered by many people to be a perfect movie. So maybe we'll have to run it by our rubric and see what we can find. Oh, it, it'll pass with flying colors. I don't know. It insists upon itself. Um, okay, Peter Griffin. But also to address Mike's question, we are planning out ahead some of our podcast episodes for the future. We're not going to tell you exactly what those are at this moment, but we are planning to do a handful of classic American and European cinema uh, in the next few months. So and the Godfather's going to kick that off. Yes. So we're going to go to movies that people have considered to potentially be the greatest movie ever made. And it's going to kick off our 200th episode on easily one of my all-time favorite movies, The Godfather. I can't wait to talk about this. I love this movie so much. I love American mob stories so much. There's so much that we're going to be able to say about it. It is a titan, literally. um, And I'm just looking forward to it. Thank you all for your questions This was so much fun for us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Love you guys. And until next time. See you.